Well, amen. Um, thank you all so much for being here with us this morning. As Brian said, my name is Kevin Tapscott. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I too, as he was kind of saying at the beginning of the service, I'm very sad that the cooler weather is going away and the hot weather is coming back. And so I guess it's appropriate we're having a sermon series called Beauty for Ashes when it's sweltering and it feels like we're all just going to catch fire. Uh, we can <laughs> recall the good news. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're starting a new sermon series today called Beauty for Ashes. We're going to be in this sermon series a little more topical for the next month or so. Um, and then we're going to jump back um, where we were in the Gospel of Luke. And so the title for this sermon series, Beauty for Ashes, comes from Isaiah 61.3, where it says that God is going to give his people, Israel, who soon are going to be conquered by the Babylonians. They're going to be sent into exile. God will give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And the city of Jerusalem was conquered and literally burned to the ground by the Babylonians. So this is very much uh, a very tangible hope for the people of God, that there will be future restoration after the judgment and exile of Israel in Babylon. But ultimately, um, this verse in all of Isaiah 61 is ultimately speaking about the hope that um, God will send his chosen one, his servant, the Messiah, who will be the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. Um, this is uh, the, the chapter of Isaiah that Jesus quotes when he begins his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. So he is the ultimate fulfillment of this. He is the one who brings beauty for ashes ultimately. Um, but we felt that this was a timely sermon series because really of everything that we're all still experiencing and enduring uh, because of the hardship of the last two years, even just struggling and suffering because of the hardship of the last two years. And I, I talked about this a little bit um, last week before my sermon. Um, but these are hardships that have impacted every single one of us, literally just about in every single area of life. And at times, I think, um, definitely in the past two years, and maybe even now, it feels like everything, our world, our society, our families, our relationships, our health, our lives, maybe even our faith, it feels sometimes everything is being burned to the ground. That once was beautiful has now just been reduced to ash and to rubble. And because of this, we cry out to God. We, we cry out to him to see our suffering, to hear our cries, and to save us. But I think the reality also of the last two years is that sometimes it feels like God doesn't hear. It feels like he doesn't care or that he isn't good. In suffering, we can begin to question his presence with us. We can begin to question his love for us. And in these moments, it's easy for our faith to be shaken, for our trust in God to struggle. I know that I have experienced all of these things in the last two years, and it's been hard. And I know many of you have experienced the same thing or something similar, too. And yet, I've also been reminded of who God is. God has gently met me in moments of intense hurt, pain, and confusion, and communicated to me his great love in the midst of that suffering. He's pointed me to scripture where I see his perfect unchanging character. It's revealed to me and it helps to give me comfort and peace in the face of just the destructive fires that are all around me. That God is a God who is good and loving and present and faithful. That he's with me in the fire. He's with you in the fire. And ultimately, he is a God who brings beauty from ashes. 
So in this short sermon series, we want to look at stories in the Bible where God does bring beauty from ashes or kind of exchanges beauty for ashes and allow these stories to help our hearts focus on who God is, on the good, um, loving, unchanging character of God at all times. And so as Brian read today, uh, we're going to be in Exodus 2, 23 through 25 and looking at the story of the Exodus. And the story of the Exodus is really the hallmark example in the Old Testament of God's love and his grace and his goodness to see the plight of his people to respond to their cries and to save them. And in looking at this story, ultimately we're going to see the beautiful character of who God is, who does the seemingly impossible, who brings beauty from ashes. But before we get to those few verses that Brian just read, I want to give a a little background to help us understand where we're at in the story in Exodus. Um, So Exodus, of course, comes after uh, the book of Genesis. And so the book of Genesis ends with Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham, bringing his whole family down to Egypt. Because one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had risen to second in command in Egypt, uh, right under Pharaoh, by the grace of God. And Pharaoh was favorable toward Jacob, toward his whole family, because of Joseph, who was now in second in command in Egypt. So Jacob and his whole family was able to come down to Egypt and to live there in peace and in rest. But at the beginning of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, it tells us this. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous that the land was filled with them. So even though... Joseph and his brothers died. That obviously is a bit of a bummer. Um, But the story ultimately in Exodus starts off on a positive note. Because the language of being fruitful and multiplying is supposed to draw our minds, take our attention back to Genesis 1.28, where God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Because this is ultimately what humanity was always supposed to do. But of course, we we know the story. We know that Adam and Eve, they sinned. And then that was in Genesis 3. By Genesis 11, we have all of the peoples on the earth rebelling against the command from God. And they are gathering together in one place at Babylon to make a name for themselves instead of being fruitful and multiplying across the earth to make a name for God. So despite humanity's sin and rebellion in Genesis 11, in Genesis 12, we see that God is determined to bless the entire world, all nations, by choosing Abraham and his family to make a covenant with so that they could be fruitful and multiply across the world to fill the world with the knowledge and the glory and the worship of the Lord, just like humans were always supposed to do. With Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, God promised to make them fruitful and multiply across the earth, that their descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the shore or as numerous as the stars in the sky, that all the nations of the world will be blessed through them, through their family and their lineage. So Exodus, starting off with the Israelites being fruitful and multiplying in Egypt, is ultimately showing God's faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his promise that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. But then a new Pharaoh comes to power in Egypt who does not know Joseph, who does not care what Joseph did years before to rescue Egypt from a severe famine. This Pharaoh, he does not see the vast numbers, the the power of Israel as a blessing from God, but rather he sees it as a threat to him and to his empire there in Egypt. So this Pharaoh, he sets out to oppress the Hebrew people 
to make sure that their numbers don't increase anymore. Verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 1 say, They, the Egyptians, worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all of this work on them. So tons of injustice, tons of oppression. They're in slavery. Nevertheless, despite their evil intentions, God is still with his people. He brings blessings that ultimately are challenging the evil oppression of Pharaoh. Because Exodus 1.12 says that the more that they oppressed them, the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more that they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So the Israelites, they're suffering oppression, but God is with them. He's still blessing them. They're still being fruitful and multiplying. Even when Pharaoh, after this, he, he commands all the Hebrew baby boys to be murdered, to stop the growth of the Israelites, God thwarts these evil plans through the brave actions of two Hebrew midwives who would not obey Pharaoh, who would not kill the baby boys. And then after that, of course, we have Moses' mother who doesn't obey this command either. And so she saves her son by hiding him for a while and then sending him in a basket on the Nile where, of course, he is rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and he is raised in Pharaoh's household. So we see God being faithful to bless his people even amidst the oppression, the evil oppression of what is happening there in Egypt. And so we, we know that Moses, he grows up in Pharaoh's household, um, he gets older, and then he eventually, he kills an Egyptian taskmaster for beating one of his fellow Hebrew people. So after this, he has to flee from Egypt because Pharaoh now wants to kill him for this. He ends up in uh, the, the area of Midian where he marries, he has children, he stays there for about 40 years before he encounters God at the famous story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter but before we get there, at the end of Exodus 2, we kind of have this transition paragraph that ultimately reminds us, the reader, of all the suffering that Israel is still experiencing there in slavery in Egypt. And so I'm just going to read it again, just those few verses, 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue for, from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So uh, the, the Pharaoh that is in power, he dies, and a new Pharaoh comes to power. And so there's kind of some hope there. Maybe this new Pharaoh will, will be more favorable toward the Israelite people. But unfortunately, he just continues the evil oppression of his predecessor. And so the Israelites, they're still in slavery in Egypt. And at this point, they've been enslaved for about 400 years. There have been generations who knew nothing but oppression and slavery. Their labor is difficult, we are told. And of course, they long to be set free. Because ultimately, their life, it says, is just causing them groaning. Everything good around them figuratively has just been burned down to the ground and is just ash. They're sitting on an ash heap that centuries of slavery has caused for them. And it says that they cry out for help. And it's interesting, the text does not say that they cried out to God for help, just that they cried out for help. Nevertheless, God is the one who hears their cries. For all they knew, they may not have been crying out to anyone or any God in particular. For them, their cries may have felt as if it was just kind of going out into a void. No one was ever going to hear them or respond to their cries. 
But while they may not have known it at their time, their cries, it says, ascended up to God. He heard, and he was about to do something for them. And so from these verses, that's the first thing that we see about who God is, the character of God, is that God hears. God hears our cries for help. God hears our prayers. He's not deaf. He's not too far away from us. When we cry out in prayer, he never puts us on hold. He's not overwhelmed by your prayers or the prayers of billions of Christians around the world. This reminded me of uh, an old Jim Carrey movie called Bruce Almighty. In that movie, he temporarily receives the powers of God, and this is kind of his job. He has to act like God. I think it was for about a week. And so one of those duties, that job description, is to respond to people's prayers. And so uh, Jim Carrey's character is just hearing voices in his head all of the time, and they're very distracting. These are the prayers of people that he, as acting as God, is hearing. And so because of these voices, he can't think. He can't do anything. So he wants to kind of organize these prayers. So he's not always hearing voices. And he comes up with the brilliant plan that he's just going to organize them all as emails. And so one morning he goes and checks his email to see how many prayers he's gotten. He downloads them. And there's about over one and a half million prayers that he, now acting as God, is supposed to respond to. And so he's like, okay. And so he goes into kind of super God-like mode and just really, really fast responds to all of these emails and thinks, okay, I must have made a dent in these one and a half emails or one and a half million emails. He hits refresh and now there's over 3 million emails of prayers that are coming in to him. And he just goes, I can't live like this. I don't have the time. I, I can't respond to all of these prayers. And so he just says, I'm going to hit reply yes to all and just be done with it because he doesn't have the time to do that. Of course, it's, it's a, a comedy movie. It's Jim Carrey. This is not really what God is like at all because the reality is that God is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is perfectly good. He, of course, has no problem hearing every person's prayers on the planet that are rising up to him, and he responds in his perfect love and grace and goodness every time and at just the right time, because this is who God is. It is in his nature, his character, to be like this toward his people that he has created, whom he has loved, and so he can't act in any way other than what is consistent with who he is. But the reality is, is that sometimes it feels like God doesn't hear us. It can feel like our prayers are just an email that got lost or got buried. That we are sometimes just yelling into a void and God is too far off or he can't hear us. When it feels like everything is burning down around us, it feels like our cries are not being heard. It can be easy to just stop praying. I mean, we might think just, what's the point? But because of who God is, we can rest assured that he deeply loves us and he cares for us and he always hears our prayers. And scripture is replete with examples, invitations, commands to pray. We are invited by God to pray in scripture because God, he delights to hear our prayers. He delights to respond to our prayers in love and grace. James 5.13 um, just invites us, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And this happens, a suffering person crying out to God in prayer in the Psalms all the time. And oftentimes, most of the time, the response in the Psalm is something like Psalm 66, 19 through 20. The suffering psalmist cries out to God in prayer and it says, 
but God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. We are called to not be anxious in anything, but in everything to bring our prayers to God. We are even encouraged in Romans chapter 8 that sometimes we just don't know what to pray, but we're encouraged that the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, if we are followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he intercedes for us. He prays for us perfectly to the Father, according to the Father's will. And in Luke 18.1, Jesus shares a parable with his followers that he explicitly says is to teach them that, that they should always pray and not give up. And so there are many, many other examples in Scripture about why we are invited and even commanded to pray. And so we can pray this way because we know that God loves us. He cares for us. He cares what's going on in our lives, especially if we're experiencing hardship and suffering. And so in the past two years, maybe right now, you might feel like your prayers are going unheard or unanswered. It might feel like God's not listening he doesn't care. Maybe he's not even present with me. I'm sure the Israelites, after 400 years in slavery, felt that way. But these things are not true. Our suffering can easily tell us that they are true, but ultimately I believe that we can trust the word of God, and we can trust even more so the character of God, that he is good and loving, and so he always hears our prayers. He responds in love and grace according to his perfect will. So no matter what kind of suffering you might be going through or how difficult prayer might feel right now, keep praying. Keep seeking God's face. Keep seeking his presence. Keep asking others to pray for you. It's hard, of course, when it feels like God isn't listening or that he doesn't answer our prayers, especially if we're praying for something that is unequivocally good. And that's, it's okay for that to be hard. It's okay to be confused by this. I have in my life. But ultimately, I want us to see the beautiful love of God for us as his children and to know that he does always hear us. He does always care for us. However he responds to our prayers, we can always trust him for he knows that he is good and faithful. Um, Tim Keller, um, he has said that God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. The reality is, is that God is not a stingy God, but he's a gracious God, a generous God. He gives us what we need in his love and in his grace. I think that one day we will understand, God will help us to understand why he answered every single one of our prayers the way that he did, even the times that he answered our prayers, no, or not yet. But for now, we are called to cry out to God in prayer and then to trust him. And we can trust him because we know who he is as God, how he has always related to us as his people. And so in, in the context of the story, the Israelites crying out to God, we know that God, he's about to answer their prayers. He's about to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. So that is the first thing that we see about who God is in our pastor, that God hears. The next thing we see is that God remembers. It says, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, in saying that he remembered his, his covenant with them, is not saying that he had kind of forgotten his covenant. It was like, oh yeah, my bad, guys. Like, I'm, I'm listening now. I'm remembering now. But rather, him remembering his covenant is an intentional recalling to mind the covenant that he had made and ultimately the covenant that he was always being faithful to for his people. 
And this recalling to mind for God was about to prompt him to act, to do something. In, in remembering the covenant, he wasn't just having fond memories of the covenant or his people, but he was about to do something because of this covenant that he was remembering. And this covenant was ultimately first established with Abraham back in Genesis 12, like I said, where God sovereignly chose Abraham as the person that he wanted to divinely bless and through whom all of the peoples on the planet would be blessed. And it's God who took this initiative, who came to Abraham to make this covenant with him. And as we've already shown, even at the beginning of Exodus, even though there was hardship, immense hardship for Israel and Egypt, God was being faithful to his covenant. He was causing the Israelite people to be fruitful and to multiply in Egypt, even amidst uh, horrific oppression. He was remembering them. He wasn't forgetting them. And this was love and grace that Abraham, that his descendants for many generations did nothing to earn. God just sovereignly chose them to bestow it on them. He chose to love them because that is who God is, always overflowing with love for his people. And even in Genesis 15, um, where God, you know, kind of elaborates on his covenant with Abraham, God tells Abraham that in the future, your descendants, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But God also tells Abraham that ultimately God is going to set his descendants free from slavery. He's going to judge those who enslave them. And we know in Exodus that God's about to do this in a very miraculous, overt way. But I think that helps us to understand that Knowing God, being known by God with covenantal love does not mean that we will never endure trials and suffering. Every major figure in the Bible so far has experienced suffering. And the rest of the Bible, every figure experiences suffering of some kind. Israel, of course, is experiencing suffering and slavery in Egypt right now. But God remembers his covenant with his people. He remembers us. He does not forget us. We may experience suffering, and I know that we all have, but if we are in Christ through faith, we are now united to this God who is loving and gracious and kind to us. We're in a relationship with a God who does not forget us, even in our pain and suffering, and somehow even uses our pain and suffering and turns it for his eternal glory and our ultimate good in Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 that literally nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That God will not forget us. And he says that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. In all of our pain and suffering, God ultimately, he remembers us because we are united to him by faith. We are his children now through faith in Jesus. He has made a covenant with us in Christ. He will not leave us. He will not abandon us. He is always faithful to us, even if we are unfaithful toward him. That's what 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us. We can be confident that his love and grace remain and that our hope and identity in Christ are secure, even in the face of the deepest of suffering. Because God is good, because he is loving he uses even our suffering for good. He uses it to produce all sorts of good things in us to help us grow in Christ-likeness and to produce things for the glory of Christ in the world. Hebrews 12.10 tells us that our suffering produces holiness in us, 
Romans 5, 3 through 4 tells us that suffering produces endurance and character and hope in us. James 1, 4 says that suffering produces greater maturity in Christ in us, which ultimately leads to us being whole and complete in Christ. And 2 Corinthians 4, 17 tells us that suffering produces for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Because of God's covenant with us in Christ, God brings glory from suffering. Christ's glory and our glory in Christ. He brings beauty from ashes. He will always remember his covenant with us and he will always act in love and grace because ultimately, if we are in Christ, he has already acted for us once for all in Christ at the cross. And so, especially with all of the suffering from the last two years, it might feel maybe in the past, maybe right now, that God has forgotten you. But that's impossible. It is not who God is. His love for you in Christ is too great. He cannot forget you. Here's what God says to his people, Israel, in Isaiah 49, 15, which ultimately applies to us because we are now God's people through faith in Christ. It says, Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. God cannot and will not forget us ever because he remembers his covenant with us in Christ. We are now his adopted children, his sons and daughters through faith in Christ. We are his kids. He's not going to forget us. This is because he loves us, because he has bestowed grace on us. So we see that God hears our cries. God remembers us. He remembers his covenant. And we see that God sees. It simply says in our passage, and God saw the Israelites. With the Israelites being in slavery for 400 years, it would be easy for them to think that God, he doesn't see what's going on. Maybe he's busy elsewhere in the world, kind of dealing with other problems. But the reality is, is that this is not who God is. God always sees. He always pays close attention to his people, those people whom he has chosen and determined to love, no matter what is going on. But God seeing the Israelites, it's saying that he saw them. It's not kind of this passive seeing as if he was just watching something on Netflix. Rather, God saw what was happening to the Israelites. He was moved with empathy and compassion for his people that he loved. This is who God is. In Genesis 15, God, he, he makes a covenant with Abraham and promises that Abraham will have a son, will have many descendants. But just one chapter later, Genesis 16 this hasn't happened yet. So Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they kind of get impatient with this promise from God and they take matters into their own hands. They don't trust God with everything. And so what they're going to do is they take their Egyptian slave, Hagar, and they mistreat her and abuse her by giving her to Abraham so that Abraham can have a child through Hagar because it wasn't happening through Sarah. And so Hagar, she does become pregnant. And because she is pregnant and Sarah is not, Hagar begins to mistreat Sarah. And so Sarah, she's upset by this and brings the matter to Abraham. And Abraham says, you can do whatever you want with our slave Hagar. So just further mistreatment. And so Sarah mistreats her back, so much so that Hagar just runs away from this abusive situation with Abraham and Sarah. And while Hagar is out on her own, pregnant, 
God appears to Hagar and tells her that the Lord has heard her cries of affliction and will bless the son that is in her womb, that she is to name Ishmael. And in Genesis 16, 13, it says this. So Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roi, which means God sees me. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? Because that is who God is. He is the God who sees me. He is the God who sees you. This isn't incidental to his character. This is who he is fundamentally. Psalm 139 tells us that God always sees us. He always knows us. It tells us that there is no place that we can go, nothing that we can do to escape the loving gaze of God. In pain and suffering, it's easy to feel like God doesn't see us. If he actually saw what we were experiencing and enduring, the suffering we were going through, things would be different, right? But in the next chapter, in Exodus 3, we see God tell Moses at the burning bush how close he had been paying attention to the suffering of the Israelites. Even though for them, it may have felt God doesn't see us. God comes to Moses in Exodus 3 and says, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. So it may have felt to the Israelites that God couldn't possibly have seen what was happening to them. But the reality is, is that he saw every bit, every ounce of their strength poured out in forced labor, every whiplash in punishment, every cut, every gash, every bruise, every death at the hands of the slave drivers, every tear that they cried. And so because this is who God is and you are his child, this means that God sees you too in your suffering. Psalm 56, 8 says, You have taken account of my miseries. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Every misery, every sleepless night, every tear, God sees them all. He keeps track of them because he loves you and he cares for you. And like I said, this isn't just a passive seeing because in the story, we know that God, he's about to do something miraculous to respond and to deliver the Israelites from slavery. So we can trust the love and goodness of the Lord to see us in our pain and suffering and to be near to us. Because as Psalm 34, 18 says, he is near to the brokenhearted. So God hears, he remembers, God sees. And the last thing we see from our passage is that God knows. And that's simply what the text says. And God knew. And it's easy to ask, okay, well, what did God know? Do you know how hard all of this was for the Israelites? How much pain they were in? How unjust all of this wickedness and evil was? Did God know how he was going to deliver them? What did God know? Ultimately, God knew all of this and so much more. Because in our suffering, it's easy to feel as if no one truly knows. And sometimes it can feel like God doesn't even know. But the reality is, is that nobody knows better than God. He knows, of course, because he's omniscient. He knows everything. But God knows because he has also experienced pain and suffering. Jesus, who is God, is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who it says, was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Hebrews 2.10 says that God made the source of our salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. 
And of course, we know that Jesus, he endured the physical pain and suffering of the cross on our behalf, as well as the suffering of being temporarily abandoned by the Father and enduring the wrath of God for us. And God the Father, he knows the pain of turning his face away from his one and only son, Jesus, who was dying on the cross. So God not only knows all of our pain and suffering because he's omniscient, he knows everything, but because he has experienced pain and suffering himself. And ultimately, God knows us. He knows us personally. He knows us intimately. Scripture says that he knows every single hair on your head. We are his adopted children through faith in Christ Jesus. He loves us deeply and knows us better, ultimately, than we even know ourselves. He knows our frames. He knows that we are but dust. And yet, he is mindful of us, even in his knowledge of us as weak sinners. He knows our situation and he knows our suffering. And with all that he knows about us, God will not turn away from us. Because sometimes in pain and suffering, it can feel like if someone fully knew all of my pain and suffering, if they knew all of my trials, all of my weaknesses, all of me, then they're ultimately going to want nothing to do with me. And we can feel this way about God sometimes. But it's not true. God fully knows us, and he only wants to be with us. His knowledge of our sins, his knowledge of our sufferings, only draw his loving heart toward us all the more to save us and to heal us. So may we let him. May we trust him at all times, even in the midst of awful pain and suffering. And so this passage, this transition passage in Exodus chapter 2 tells us some things about who God is. He is a God who hears, who remembers, who sees, and who knows. This is who God is in the depths of his being. And because all of these things are true, because God loves us deeply, greatly as his children, we see that God acts. He acts. He does something. The bystander effect never applies to God. He doesn't just wait around for someone else to do something. He doesn't have bad timing, even though sometimes, oftentimes, God acts um, in a timing that we wish were different. God loves us fully, and he always acts on our behalf perfectly according to his perfect will and his perfect timing. So for the Israelites— 400 years suffering in slavery, their entire world had just been burned down to the ground. It was all ash because of the evil and the wickedness of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But God was about to act for them. He was about to bring beauty from ashes. And so in the next chapter, Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush to call Moses as his special servant, who he is going to use to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And of course, we know that the bush is burned with fire, but it's not consumed. It burns, but it's not reduced to ash. Because God can bring beauty from ashes, and he can also prevent things from being reduced to ash. And he can also bring the fire of judgment on evil and wickedness, because God is a holy God. He is a just God. And we know, of course, that that's what he is about to do in the ten plagues in judging the Egyptians. And so Moses, he sees this bush burning. It's not being consumed, and he can't come close to it. But he has to remove his sandals because God says the place where you are standing is holy ground because he was standing in the immediate presence of God. In times of suffering, when we feel hopeless, 
it can feel like what we ultimately really need is for our circumstances to change, for God to change what's going on in our life in exactly the way that we think that he should. But in times of suffering, what we ultimately need is the presence of God. And so here's what God says to Moses in Exodus 3, 7 through 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so, because God saw what was happening to Israel in Egypt, he heard their cries, he knew the depths of their suffering, he was about to rescue them from the Egyptians. He was about to take them out of that oppressive land. He was about to bring them into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham years before where there will be immense blessing from God. So God was about to act for them on their behalf. So back in Exodus 2:23, it says that the cries, the prayers of the Israelites, they came up to God. And so now it says that God, he's gonna come down to rescue the Israelites because these were his people whom he loved. He had made a covenant with them. He was not going to forget them or leave them in this situation. He was going to rescue them because he had promised even long ago to Abraham that he would and that he would lead them into the promised land. So in their suffering, there was ash in Egypt, but there was beauty in the promised land. It says it was a land that was flowing with milk and with honey, where they would be provided for abundantly by God, and they would experience peace from God. There would be deliverance and salvation from slavery. God was not going to leave them in this awful situation. He was moved in his love and his mercy and his compassion to save them, to act on their behalf. And we know that he did save them. He judged the wicked Egyptians with the ten plagues, and he miraculously delivered the Israelites through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And after that event, in Exodus 15, the Israelites sing this song, and part of the song says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed, you will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. So God, he, he makes a covenant with his people and he binds himself to them. And there's, of course, plenty of hiccups along the way because ultimately of the sins of the Israelites, but ultimately God does bring them into the promised land. He establishes them there in that land. He blesses them there in that land. God is faithful to his people and his character and acts to save them from this ash heap that they were experiencing, to give them beauty instead of ashes. And in the same way, God has seen our pitiful situation. He's seen our slavery to sin and to death, and he was moved in love to save us. Just as God came down to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, Jesus came down to this earth so that he could go to the cross on our behalf. 
And he rose from the dead victoriously, and we are saved from our sin, from death, through faith in him. The salvation of the Israelites from Egypt, this miraculous salvation through the parted waters of the Red Sea, ultimately was only a foreshadowing of the greater salvation through faith in Christ, where Jesus went down to the grave for us so that we could walk safely from death into eternal life. And now those of us who have placed faith in Christ, we have been forgiven, we have been saved, and we have been redeemed. We have experienced those things to an even greater degree than the Israelites being saved from slavery in Egypt. And this is because of who God is. And so after he saves them from slavery in Egypt, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, the law, as his covenant people, in Exodus 34, God tells his people who he is. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And this loving, compassionate God sent Jesus to this earth and to the cross for us. Now we are the recipients of a new and better covenant through faith in Christ. And because we are united to God through faith in Christ, We are his adopted children. Because we're his adopted children, we know that he always remembers us. He remembers his covenant with us. He always hears our cries. He always sees our pain and he always knows. Because this is who God is, he acts. He does something. Indeed, for us now, after the cross, after the resurrection, Jesus, God has already acted for us through faith in Christ by sending Jesus to this earth, by sending Jesus to the cross. Now, because of the hope we have in Christ, we can see that even in pain and suffering, when everything around us feels like it's just being burned to the ground, burned to ash by the fires of this broken world, we can not only see beauty because we can see that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus brought the kingdom of God we can look forward to the beauty when Jesus returns and fully establishes God's kingdom forever, which is the kingdom that we know there will be no more tears or crying or pain anymore. God does still save us from our suffering now. Salvation from suffering, from pain, from hurt, from all of that is not just this future reality that feels abstract. He does act on our behalf now and save us now. But even if his In his wisdom, if in his sovereignty, he chooses not to save us from our pain and suffering in the way that we would like, we can rejoice because we know that he has already saved us in Christ. And we know that when he returns and Jesus fully establishes the kingdom of God, we will get to experience this beautiful salvation for all of eternity. And we can trust God to be with us and to give us what we need in the present. We always have hope in suffering because we always have Christ with us. And we know that because of God's love for us in Christ, our suffering is not pointless. Our pain is not wasted. Through those things, God is shaping our hearts and he is bringing to completion the good work that he began in us when he saved us in Christ. And we know that our lives in Christ now are beautiful because ultimately God is beautiful. And we will all experience unimaginable beauty when Jesus returns And all the sad things become untrue. So because God is a God of beauty who makes all things beautiful and glorious, we know that he is a God who brings beauty from ashes. 
And we know that we can have hope and joy even in the midst of suffering because we can look to Christ and what he won for us at the cross. And we can look forward to when he returns and the kingdom of God is fully established. And so in that, we can find hope because of who God is and his great love for us. Let's pray. Lord, I'm humbled because, God, if you never did another good thing for me the rest of my life, if you never blessed me, with another blessing. God, I would have eternal reasons to praise you and worship you for eternity because of what you have already done for me in Christ. God, I'm humbled because, Lord, I I was dead in my sin. I was lost. I was rejecting you, and yet you loved me, and you pursued me, and you saved me through faith in Christ. And Lord, for everyone here this morning who names the name of Jesus, that is true for them as well. God, we are your sons and daughters now through faith in Christ. And we know that you will never leave us. You will never forget us. You will never forsake us. God, the last two years have been hard for all of us. And in so many ways, they are still hard. And so Lord, I'm thankful for this reminder, God, that you are a God who hears our cries God, you remember us. You remember the covenant that you made with us through faith in Christ. God, you see us. You see our pain and our suffering. God, and you know us and that you act. You act for us in love and grace and goodness. God, we know that you have acted perfectly, fully, once for all in Christ. When you sent him to this earth and sent him to the cross so that we might be forgiven and saved and reconciled to you and so that we might have hope and joy in all circumstances, even in suffering. So God, help us this morning to fix our eyes on you, your love for us, your unchanging character, and to be moved to worship, Lord, because you are worthy at all times. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.